Um, if you turn with me on the passage to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Second Samuel, and I'll be reading from chapter twenty-three, verses thirteen through seventeen. This is uh, we're chronicling now the end of David's life. This is the last sermon of today's of the series uh, that we've been dwelling on for the last uh, several months. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. I know that the NIV will be printed um, on your screens and in your bulletins. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives, therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And this is God's word. If you're new or visiting, um, you know, we've been away for quite a while, and we're making our way back now into the building, and as, as it begins to fill up, we're wrapping up this one series, we're entering into a new. So I'm going to share a little bit about both. But I'm going to start by talking, by wrapping up our series today. The past few months, we've been looking at areas in our life that everyone needs to make it in life. And these things don't come naturally. They require change. They require supernatural change. Uh, We're going to end today, fittingly, with basically a response to the gospel. What does it mean to obey? What does it mean to be faithful to God? Now, here's the background of this text that we just read, because I just gave you a little snapshot. When King Saul became aware of David being anointed as the next king, he was overwhelmed by rage. He was overwhelmed by jealousy. And basically, he began to openly try to to murder David, to kill David. Essentially, the entire nation fell into a civil war. And David had to flee. I mean, he went into caves There, around 400 men, 400 men at one point gathered, gathered around David, and they became a very close band of soldiers. Now, the epilogue, Saul died. Saul died, and these men that were with David, they uh, made up David's palace, they made up his guards, they made up his military elite. They were uh, skilled warriors, skilled leaders, strategic leaders, They were his most loyal friends, and they followed David from the time that he was in the caves. They saved his life. These leaders, they saved his life. They loved David. They were called his mighty men. Now, uh, today, we're going to look at today's passage. It points to a time very early on. So you guys see what's happening here. First and second Samuel pretty much wrap up the whole of David's life, and then what happens is they, the author, instead of just ending it with the legacy of David, goes all the way back to a very, very early time in David's reign as king. And so you have these Philistines. They were the neighbors 
of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. They at one point decided to invade Israel. And uh, why did they do this? Because David was a new king. David was inexperienced. This is probably the most vulnerable time in David's career as a leader over Israel. And so they wanted to test that leadership. And so in verses 13 to 14, The text says that the Philistines, they were encamped in the valley of Rephaim, which is really just a few miles southwest of the capital that David established in Jerusalem. And they had taken over Bethlehem, which was David's hometown. They had taken over David's hometown, and so David had to flee again, right, in this time. He fled to a cave, and verse 13 says that this was all taking place during the time of the harvest, which is disastrous. Why? Because if the Philistines, if your enemies come in and they don't just rout you right away, but they destroy and plunder your harvest, this is an agrarian culture in those days, the country would have a shortage of food. And the kingdom would then fall into an economic depression. During a time of war, soldiers will have nothing to eat. Nobody, and so not only will we have fights breaking out in the country, right, over food, over just their well-being, survival, you're also at the same time fighting outside to save your country. And so the Philistines, they're in the heart of Israel here uh, at a time when their economic stability was at risk. It was a really dark time for David, this new, inexperienced king. And while he's in the cave, verse 15, David says, oh, that someone would get me water. Oh, that someone will get me a drink of water from the well near this gate in Bethlehem. Now, I want to be very clear. David wasn't thirsty. He wasn't thirsty because there's no way that he would establish. I mean, David, one thing he knew by that point, uh, embroiled in a civil war, he was at least strategic enough to know that you're not going to have 400 men encamped with you in a place that had no water. There had to be running water there somewhere, maybe a spring, maybe a small a brook or something like that. He wasn't longing for water per se. He wasn't longing for physical water. He was longing for home. He says, I want the water of Bethlehem. He's not longing for physical water. He's longing, Bethlehem's water, the water there was known to be sweet. And so that water represented the favor of God, the presence of God, God's grace over David. In other words, David wasn't longing for some physical provision, some material provision from God. He was longing for the promise of God. Remember, God had anointed him as king. God had handpicked David. He was supposed to be a king, and yet here he's in a cave. Again, He was supposed to be their deliverer, sit on the throne and rule. God was supposed to be present with him, but here he's helpless, vulnerable, in a cave, fighting for his life, for survival, throneless, now homeless. And so what he's really saying is, will I ever get home? Am I ever going to get home? Will I ever be able to be king? Will Will there ever be peace in my reign, in my rule, in my life? In other words, is God really with me? Does God really see me? How will I know that? And so he sighs. I'm just longing for that time when there will be peace in my life, when there will be rest in my life. And what happens? Somebody hears him. He's overheard. Of the 30 chief men, there were three mightiest of the men, 
And chapter 23, the beginning of chapter 23 sheds light on their honor and their courage and their valor, their heroics. heroics. And, and these three, they hear the king's longing. They hear his sigh. They see his suffering. And they trust him and they love him. And they know that God has chosen this man to be king. And so verse 16, what do they do? These three men, they break through. These mighty men break through the Philistine lines. They draw water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. And they carry it back to David. Now, for an amazing, for such an amazing narrative, there's so little detail about what's going on here, what actually happened. The Bible, it just shows us, the Bible doesn't romanticize war, doesn't romanticize blood. But I have to kind of lay out what happened for you. If you, to, if you think about this, verse 16, the Philistine garrison, it, it, garrison is like an early warning detection system. Right, security system. It's got about 20 soldiers. And what happened is these three men cut their way through that garrison of 20 men. And then they have to go, Bethlehem is on a hill, strategically on a hill with a gate. And so they got to they gotta get to that gate up a hill. So they got to fight uphill, which is always at a disadvantage, right? They break through that to get to the well. Now, you've got to think about it. Somebody's got to get the water. So now they have three men. Now they're down to two. Somebody's drawing water while what? The other two guys are fighting off not only the garrison. If you think about it, now the Philistines have alerted. They've all been alerted because Bethlehem, their headquarters, has been invaded. And so what do they do? Now they're fighting more than 20 men. Most likely a large portion of that army. Two men have to fight off the entire Philistine camp while one of them is filling the water. Maybe they took turns, I don't know. And then they had to fight their way back out through all of that to get home. And they all got back safely. All three men. They brought it back to David. Three men. David is so moved and filled with joy and filled with gratitude. What does he do? He refuses to drink it. Instead, he pours it out before the Lord. Now, in our Western world, I need to kind of explain to you, if somebody does a wonderful thing for you and goes to great lengths to get something for you, you would treasure it. You would, if it's a sweater, if it's, a, if it's an outfit, you would put it on right there. If it was, it was something special to you, right, you would demonstrate that gratitude to these people who have brought you such a thing, Right? What you certainly wouldn't do is trample on it. He pours this water out that these men risked their lives for, and they're not indignant. Nowhere here does the text say, in verse 17, the text doesn't say that they were indignant because they wouldn't have been. They would have been honored. Because what David was doing here was he was pouring out this drink. What was to be a drink offering has now become a thanksgiving offering. And thus it was an act of worship, and the men knew. What he's saying is because of the sacrifice of these men who risked their lives, now I know that God is with me. Now I know that God is for me. That's what he's saying. God used these three men to encourage David because they knew that if David could see three men break through the entire enemy line, then David would have courage and be reminded that God is with him, that his army can beat the entire nation of Philistia. They knew. 
And if these Philistines knew that three men could break through their greatest, the greatest part of their stronghold, their garrison, their entire camp, they now know that David's army could defeat them. These three men, they weren't trying to show how courageous they were. They weren't trying to show how honorable they were. They weren't trying to show how impulsive or crazy they were. They weren't trying to show how mighty and strong they were. They were calculated, skilled, strategic warrior leaders. But they trusted God. They knew that David was called to be king. And they wanted to show David what they knew when he was weak. That God was with them. They had total devotion to their ultimate king, and so demonstrated this devotion to their king. And they wanted to show him that victory comes through suffering, through suffering, not despite suffering, but through suffering. And David realized that, and so he was encouraged, and he was honored, and he was moved. That's the narrative. What do we learn from it? We learn quite a few things I'm going to share with you right now. One, every Victory. Every victory, this is an obvious one, every victory is a gift by God's sheer grace. When David poured out this water before the Lord, he was saying, I didn't earn this. I didn't deserve this. I didn't even ask for this. I wouldn't ask for this. Only by God's grace did these men successfully break through these lines. You saw my weakness and it shaped you, and it convicted you, my friends. You saw what needed to be done. What does that teach us? Don't trust. Don't trust the externals. We've been talking about this since the start of this series. Don't rely on the externals. Don't rely on your skills. Don't rely on your strengths. It takes us all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Saul, the original king, was rejected. Why? Because he was relying on the externals and the skills and the strength, and it led him down a road of tremendous corrosion in his soul. Don't ever say, we did this. We accomplished this. We got here. You pour it out before the Lord because it's all a gift, a gift by God's sheer grace. David, you know, he didn't need the water. He didn't need water. He wasn't thirsty. He wanted home. And there he realized that home was within grasp. There he realized that home, God, was with him. God was with him. Through these men, he saw that. How do you know that you are relying on externals? Because There's not a single person here, I mean, even from a worldly standpoint, there's not a single person here, if you watch Disney all the way to any, you know, deep drama that you see, the world will tell you not to rely on externals too much and yet contradict itself because there's such reliance on externals. How do you know that you're trusting in your own strengths, in your own skills? I'm going to give you a few clues. One, how did David know that God was present? How did David know? Was it because he was so strong, because he was so wise, because he was so skilled? No. God surrounded him with godly friends who did everything that they could to show him, 
to show him who to trust, to trust the Lord. Now, these men had to demonstrate practical grace to David in order for David to recognize and remember. Remember over and over, we need to be reminded that God is present, that God is for us, that God is with us. We may consider the wisdom of other people, but we don't listen to the wisdom of other people. That's how you know that that's definitely a clue that you're relying on your own strengths, the externals. Number two, you may give, but you will never sacrifice for other people. These three men risked their lives because they knew God was present. The presence of God afforded them great courage. The presence of God afforded them the desire to sacrifice. There was great humility there, great meekness there. Number three, if and when things go down poorly. I mean, just because you sacrifice, just because you listen to other people, things could still go poorly. When things go down poorly, you don't resent people. You don't blame other people. If you're resenting people, blaming other people, the corrosion has already begun. It's setting in. You see that? And you're trusting in yourself. David was totally shaped, totally moved to the point where it led him to worship because of his friends. It's not like things had improved greatly. Actually, nothing improved. They were still at risk of economic turmoil. He was still in a cave. Nothing changed. But it was the reminder of God's presence in his life that allowed him to say, this is the Lord. He is present. If you look at David... If you look at these men, there was victory, but there's no gloating. There's no overt celebration. There's no revelry in terms of how great we are. There was just worship. Their eyes were always on the Lord. The men, David himself, they saw the Lord in it, above it, underneath it, through it. And it afforded them great humility, which afforded them great courage. Now, here's a question. It's a question my seminary professor asked me. He's a missiologist here in Philadelphia, responsible for planting many, many churches. And uh, I was, you know, really just at the time in school because really just for the sake of learning. There was no sense of call uh, to be a minister in my life. Uh, go figure, right? Um, and so uh, here I am in this, uh, in this place and um, studying. And uh, I was running a small camp in the summertime for youth and children. And uh, my professor points me out in the middle of this crowd and he says, uh, Donnie Cho, you know, uh, how do you do the summer thing that you do? And I said, because I know you work full time. And I said, well, you know, I sacrifice some of my vacation time. Um, I try to do about a week. My team usually goes in. They do the first week. I come in and do the second week and help to wrap up, and that's how I kind of use my vacation. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your boss. He said, how do you do it? And I said, well, I go to my boss, and I make sure, you know, months in advance, I'll let him know these are the dates that I'd like to take this time off, block it out, you know, so on and so forth. The professor says, uh, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write an email, because about that time, it's about that season, 
And what I want you to do is I want you to tell your boss that you're going to take two and a half weeks off, even though you're only afforded to, right? And I was looking at him like, but you don't understand. Like, you know, you never worked in a secular job before, like since when, with ministry at the same time. You don't understand the pressures of this. And I was trying to justify, well, you know, that's very, very complicated. It's, you know, um, you, you have to understand my company and stuff like that. And he stops me and he goes, no, 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 I don't need to understand. I'm going to ask you a question. Who gave you your job? And why did he give it to you? Friends? Who gave you your looks? Who gave you your spouses? Who gave you your relationships, your friendships? That 401k, is that your 401k? Who gave you that? Some of you don't have 401Ks. 403Bs. Is that your 403B? Am I speaking your language? When you recognize that these things do not belong to you, but they've been given to you, a tremendous humility sets in and a courage, a humility to obey and be faithful and the courage and the humility also to not rely on the externals, your gifts, no one's saying you're not intelligent. Who gave it to you is my question. Is it because you just read more books or scored better on exams? Who gave you those opportunities? When you recognize who it is that afforded every victory for you, a tremendous humility sets in along with a courage to sacrifice worship number two lessons every circumstance is an explicit or implicit opportunity to honor God and give thanks to him in worship look this is war David's in a cave people are going hungry the amount of pressure that he is shouldering in that moment 400 men, that's 400 mouths to feed and their families to ensure that they are focused on what's going on. Hiding away, planning and strategizing and maneuvering and outmaneuvering. Making sure that supplies are intact with no internet, no radio. The nation scattered. People have invaded his hometown. There is an economic depression looming. But these men and David are able to acknowledge in this one captured moment during a very dark time that God is present and for them. Don't wait for that final outcome to thank God. You know how it is, right? You get the award, it's all God, right? We say that, right? But we, do, we laugh but in, our, in, you know, in our hearts, but we do that. It's that brief and subtle acknowledgement, but really... What we're doing is we're dismissing God's involvement really altogether. You got to put that, you got to give that acknowledgement some teeth. You got to give that acknowledgement some punch. Don't wait for that final outcome. Every incremental moment is an opportunity to say, and that's good or bad. Remember, David is in war. He's in a cave. He's not on his throne. 
And yet he's able to say, I see the Lord's presence and his love for me, not just in the good moments. And the story isn't over. If the bad moment is there, David learned here that the story isn't over. He sees. He's hopeful. He's grateful. A life of gratitude is one of the supernatural marks of a Christian in any time, good or bad, whether you are on the throne or in the throes of misery. You understand? Another lesson, uh, obedience. These men are so devoted to their king, there was no difference between a command and a uh, sigh. David's sigh. It was just some nostalgic wish became their command. What does that mean? Christians respond to the Lord the way these men responded to David. Christians respond to the Lord the way these men responded to David, their king. Religious people in the church, they concentrate what? Mainly on rules. So when a religious person is asked to do something that's apart from what they really want, apart from their needs or something that fulfills their desires, they become very frustrated. They won't show you because this is a church. You got to be clean and proper in a church. That's what a religious person does. He will never show you. He will never tell you because he's trying to demonstrate humility is different from being humble, right? Demonstrate uh, wisdom is different from being wise, right? So what they're going to do is they're going to clothe and mask what really drives them, what they really want, what they really feel like they need, and they're going to be very frustrated when they're asked to do something or sacrifice for something that goes apart from that or counter to that. Now, in other words, a religious person, they obey as long as their desires are met. They will befriend you as long as their desires are met, they will, and you will befriend God as long as your needs and your felt needs, your perceived needs are met. You see, that's how it works. It's not really a relationship. It's not very personal. It's not very intimate. It's really more like give and take, you see, because that relationship will then last as long as those needs and desires are met. You will start to question God not when things are going well. That's already going on in the heart. Because you question God's presence and involvement in you, your life when things are going well, you will definitely question God's presence in your life when things are not. But a Christian searches God's heart and hears God's sigh. A Christian looks at the commands of God and sees God's character, his brilliance, his wisdom, his heart. And he's moved by that so much that he takes joy in obeying the Lord. It's why a Christian, humble, courageous, can live a big life. A religious person will never be able to live a big life. It doesn't, a, a religious person will not have the confidence and the courage and the humility and the meekness that you need to get through life. Especially, I mean, guys, can I talk to you a little bit like, like a brother? I say that once in a while, right? Can I talk to you a little bit like a father? I'm, I'm old enough to be some people's fathers in this room, right? I think, right? Can I tell you like a father? It gets harder. You think it's hard now? It's going to get harder. I know it's not what you wanted to hear here. I'm going to give you some good news, right? 
We're a gospel-centered church. But you've got to hear the bad news. It gets harder. A lot of it's because of us, our sinfulness. It gets a lot harder. Look at these warriors. Their obedience didn't make them less of a warrior. It made them more of a warrior. Our selfishness, what that means is our selfishness oftentimes makes us less of what God intends us to be, less in the image of God, less the character of God, because our selfishness creates, we have fears, we have desires, we have, we have things that are apart from the character of God, and so it, you, it will dehumanize you. But the gospel will restore that. The gospel restores us to reflect that faithfulness and humility and courage that we see in the character of God. Verse 15, oh, that someone would just give me a drink from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. And they went. There was no discussion. There was no huddle. There was no meeting. It was almost instinctive. Their love for their king was just so just so real, so personal. It was dynamic and it sharpened them. And it wasn't, so, it wasn't like they wanted something from David. If I do this, I will move up. Move up from where? They were in a cave. They, people were betting against this crew. It was just because of their love for their king. He sighs, they go. The relationship The relationship between a religious person and God is very mechanical. Why? You know, it's because of that give and take. It's very transactional. Because they don't obey out of love. They, They obey because they love something else that they want in return. Maybe it's the approval of some of you. Maybe it's the approval of some of us. Maybe it's something material. Whereas a personal relationship with God, if you have a personal relationship with God, it's radically personal, radically just dynamic, radically intimate, radically sharpening. Because you don't come for a thing. You're coming for God himself. When David, he saw these mighty men break through, it gave him incredible assurance that he was home. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. God was present with him because they risked their lives. What is this ultimately trying to tell us? What is this ultimately trying? You're gonna, we're going to summarize this now and bring it, bring it to a close. If you read the Bible, in order, if you read the Bible and you're reading it with the lens where you're just trying to get something else, so you're trying to earn God's favor, the word of God, your obedience will never shape you. It will never change your life. If anything, it's going to become oppressive to you It's going to become very, very uh, disagreeable to you, confusing to you, disappointing to you at times. You need to understand that the Bible is about Jesus. It's about Christ. Now, I'm making a very big jump here. We were just talking about David. We're going to come to Christ. Let's take a look. Look at Jesus Christ. He's a greater king. He's a greater David, and yet he overheard your sigh. He hears your sigh. You want to go home. You're questioning God's presence in your life. This passage points to someone who overhears your heart, your side. And so what does he do? He gets right up. 
And he faces the ultimate enemy for you, breaks through the ultimate enemy lines, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus Christ's blood is pouring out as a result of his sacrifice, his offering. The spear struck him and out flew blood and water. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount, no other water I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus' life pours out like water, and this blood pours out onto the ground because Jesus is making the ultimate sacrifice. And as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have lost the throne. David was throneless for a period. I have given up my throne. I've lost the throne. I've lost the kingdom. I've lost my home. God is my home, and he has forsaken me. In other words, he's saying, is God present? Is he present for me? No. That has been denied. No one is here to hear my sigh. And he was groaning on the cross and sighing deep sighs on the cross because he was dying of suffocation. David's men honored him with a drink. But my people have abandoned me, betrayed me, dishonored me, and here everyone is mocking me and insulting me. And he says, I thirst. I thirst. On the cross, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. He's thirsting for home. He's thirsting for his God. And he was denied, and he died. He gave up the victory. And yet, do you know? He was actually reciting Psalm 22 which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He begins with that. You know what that means? As his blood is pouring out, as he was heaving heavy sighs with no one to hear, he was worshiping to the end. Into your heart, into your hands, I commit my spirit, Jesus says. To the end, he's trusting and faithful and obedient. To the end. As his life is pouring out, he obeyed to the end. And that gives us far greater assurance that God is present with us than David ever had. David was blown away by the sacrifice of these mighty men. David had hope and strength, and it moved him. He was moved by their honor. What about you? What are you moved by? What moves you and compels you right now? When you're at work in the midst of the war, We call it a war room, don't we, in those meeting rooms? When you're at war and you're hungry because you haven't had lunch and you haven't slept and sometimes you feel abandoned, you're thinking about your economic and financial security, you're thinking about your future with uncertainty and you're questioning, is God faithful? Is God present? What about you? Jesus Christ is the ultimate mighty man, the ultimate warrior, overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. Are you overwhelmed by his sacrifice for your sin? Are you moved to worship by his obedience on the cross for you? We should be. David was was moved by mere men who did an incredible act of bravery out of their uh, allegiance to their king. David, even though he was king, he knew he didn't deserve it. It humbled him, and so he was worshipful. Yet, 
The mighty man gave him strength because he was reminded that God works through this to bring him ultimate victory. How much more are we reminded that through the death and the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, God God will work through that? How much more are we reminded when we look to the cross? Only if you see Jesus doing that for you, if you see his sweetness and his sacrifice and his honor and his valor and courage, his humility, his obedience, his faithfulness, his heroism, his love. He heard your sigh. That's what's behind the sacrifice. And if you see that, will then you be able to pour out your life in obedience as a thanks offering to God in response? There are two types of people here in this room. I had more stuff I was going to say. But alas, my time has elapsed. So I'm going to share with you. There are two types of people in this room. The first type, the only way that they're ever going to truly obey is if they don't own the wisdom that they're given and they have to be hammered into submission. And it creates a bitterness of the soul. And the church is full of them. The church is actually more full of those types. Now, class, I need to tell you this, all right? When, when Pastor Donnie says that, he's asking you to question the religious person that's in there. Because every one of us has one of those in us. The other type of person is melted his heart is melted by the sacrifice and love of Christ. He sees it in these passages in Scripture, and he's just overwhelmed by God's love through Jesus. And it lends him to afford great humility, great courage, meekness, faithfulness, obedience. Can you imagine a community of people? It leads to genuine community. The power of friendship to encourage, to admonish. You know, there's chapters like Nathan going to David in, in 2 Samuel 11. You are that man, right? But then there's passages like this, those same friends who demonstrate honor and courage, the practical love of God. We need to look at and surrender. We need to uproot the, the roots and the seeds of religiosity and all that breeds fear and, and uh, selfishness and pride. Uproot those things as we've learned throughout this series. We're about to head into a new series we call it pastoral prayers because after a year of everything that we've endured, I wanted each of our pastors to speak into that with passages that really moved them through the year. So they literally are the prayers of your pastors for you. As we kind of make that transition, I, it's my prayer and my hope that we will come together as a body again and remember what it means to long for home and know that God is present here 
and that that is the most important thing amidst all of our trials and temptations and, 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 um, and struggle in life. We're going to bring it here. We're going to surrender these things before Jesus. Let's pray together.